Welcome. Like you said, my name is Pastor Jonathan, and I get the privilege of being a middle school pastor here. Um, pastor Jim is on vacation, spending some much-needed family time with the grandbabies and all that fun stuff. But would you help me in honoring our lead pastor and giving him a hand clap for all that he's done? Been a lead pastor for over 30 years, dedicated. Anyone who stands on this stage is really standing on his shoulders. So, Pastor, I want to tell you, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. And if this is your first time, please come back to hear him uh, speak. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some students, if the students are in the house and, or the adults who help the students out. Where are you at? Let me hear you. Let me see you. Yeah. Listen, uh, uh, the, 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 the truth is this. I think that some of the greatest movements of God that have ever happened in the world have happened because some students got passionate about God and chose to go all out for him. And, and that's what we do in student ministry. So if you want to be a part of setting hearts on fire for God, feel free to come see me afterwards. We have a spot for you where you can use your gifts for that. But uh, one of my favorite verses of the entire Bible is one found in 1 Corinthians. And uh, Paul is speaking and he says, be, uh, he says, um, I did not come with persuasive words of wisdom, but I came in demonstration of the Holy Spirit, that your faith would be based on the Holy Spirit and not upon words. And so I decided I'm going to start my message off by showing you some miracles that are also demonstration of the Holy Spirit. It's my family. We got some pictures on the screen of my beautiful family. Listen, some of y'all in the room and you're a two and you're praying, God, send me a 10. He still does miracles. Glory be to God, right? Look at my wife. Her name is Dara. She's from Monterrey, Mexico. So she's giving me permission to tell taco jokes today. So I'll be telling taco jokes, all right? Uh, my little daughter, her name is Gracie. And we just found out we have another little chocolate chunk on the way, right? Due May of next year. We are ecstatic and stressed at the same time. So it's going to be a great time. Are you ready for God's word this morning? Amen, amen. If you can turn your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. If you don't have it, it's up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Just a quick disclaimer. Um, as I'm talking today, I'm just talking with you. So I want some engagement. So feel free to talk back with me. Say amen. Say that's good. Say gloria a Dios. Like I said, permission, right? I can say that, right? Like you, can, you can say those things. Uh, also, midway through the sermon, you're going to be like, Pastor Jonathan is sweating a lot, right? Like, <laughs> do we need some help on stage? That's why I brought my hanky. Don't be alarmed if you see the sweat. That's just what happens. Flannel. I'm the lumberjack today. All right. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. I'll read it out loud, and you can read out loud the parts that are in bold on the screen, all right? Let's read it. It says this, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and don't be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready. To make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the, what's that word? Hope, for the hope that is in you. Yet, with gentleness and with reverence. The title of my message this week is Ready with Hope. I am praying that at the end of this message that you realize that you have a hope in Christ that can be ready in your hearts. But also that you're ready to give it to other people who ask about it. So, help me preach real fast. I want you to touch the neighbor next to you. Touch them and say, neighbor, get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Listen, 
that neighbor was already thinking about the turkey and the stuffing, right? I saw it touch the other neighbor and say, other neighbor, I got hope today. Other neighbor, I got hope today. I'm going to pray and we'll get the party started. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we are in your presence. We put our hearts and our mind and our focus on you. We remove any distractions so that we can truly hear the hope that you have for us. And walk away filled with it, ready with hope, because your hope is ready for us. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen and amen. When I was in high school, uh, I got the opportunity to play for a cool high school football team. We were uh, state champs three out of four years. The 6A team was awesome. But I didn't know anything about football until I was in the seventh grade. In the seventh grade, I was in this thing called Royal Rangers. Have you ever heard of Royal Rangers, by the way? Royal Rangers is old school, right? The Royal Ranger motto is, we are ready. Ready for anything. Ready to work, play, serve, obey. Okay, y'all not ready. All right. <laughs> Worship and etc. That's That's what we, we used to say. We were in Royal Rangers on a Wednesday night, and I tackled someone, and they were like, you should join football. So we, we couldn't afford it, and there was a family that just paid for it everything for us. There was another family that would pick me up for practice and bring me home. And that family, the son was on our football team. His name was Jonathan. And I remember, like I said, I never played football before, but I remember I was watching a game and I saw a punter kick the ball. And I'd never kicked the football before, so I was like, I'm going to try this at practice. Uh, like a middle schooler would do, right? So uh, we go to practice. We break the huddle. It's at the end. We're heading towards the parents. I see the football. I'm like, I'm going to try this. So I kick it as hard as I can, and it goes soaring into the sky. But as it's in the sky, I start to see that it's going right where the parents are, all right? And in the pathway of the football is Jonathan's mom, the lady who's giving us a ride today, okay? And I don't know if you've ever had a moment where tragedy is getting ready to happen before you and you have to say something, right? I, I wanted to be like, listen, Jonathan's mom, there's a football about to hit you. Please step to your left, right? That's what I should have said. Instead, I was like, ah! <laughs> that's, that's all I could do. I, I just screamed. It didn't work. It came down. It hit her smack in the face. Instantly breaks her glasses. Her eye is swollen. Jonathan, who didn't know I kicked it because I was behind him, is running to his mom. His mom is weeping, and so is Jonathan. All the parents are like, who threw the football? I was like, there's some teenager back here throwing and kicking footballs. I didn't see it, but that kid deserves to get in trouble, right? Like, so we go. Her eye is so swollen. She can't give us a ride home. They think she needs stitches. So somebody else gives us a ride home. You guys feel so bad. Right? Somebody else gives her a ride home, gives us a ride home. Two days later, her, his mom comes to pick us up, and she has a black eye, ended up needing stitches. Still to this day has no clue it's me. So Jonathan, if you're watching, I apologize, right? And she's in the car, and she's like, I just pray that we find out which one of those kids did that, right? Well, welcome. Prayer answered, right? I, I remember... I remember in that moment, I thought to myself, man, Jonathan's mom just was not ready whatsoever for what was about to happen to her. And listen, I'm telling this story because you and I are in equal danger this week. Like there's, there's going to be a moment that you're going to be enjoying the holiday season. 
You're going to be sitting down. You have your plate of Thanksgiving food. Only brown food makes it on my plate, like stuffing, uh, turkey, right? Not ham. Ham is for Christmas. I'm going to pray for you if you like ham. Anyway, put it on the plate, gravy over all of it. You're going to be enjoying the food and the cheese man. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, someone is going to ask the big question. Listen, point number one, the big question is coming. Someone's going to ask you a question about your faith. And if you're not ready, it's going to come like a football out of the sky that just hits you. And you're going to leave with, with a spiritual black eye. If we are in equal danger this morning, maybe it's going to be preparing for Pixels All the Way. You're going to be inviting your family December 8th and 9th. There's four services. Shameless plug. Right? You're inviting them. And maybe you have an older child and is an adult child and, and they say something to you like, I don't really celebrate Christmas anymore the Christian way because I just think, I think God's just like a Santa Claus in the sky. It doesn't really exist, doesn't, isn't real, just wants us to, to, to be good and, and he's going to mark it. What do you say in that moment? When the football out of the sky comes towards you and the big question comes to you. Do you get mad and frustrated or are you ready? Peter is asking us to be ready. This is the tenor of our text. Peter is talking to a group of Christians who are in Asia Minor and they are experiencing persecution. The Jews are persecuting them because Christians no longer believe that the Messiah is coming. They believe the Messiah is here. And now the Jews are saying, no, you're no longer a part of us. The Romans are persecuting them as well because the Romans actually believe that Christians are atheists because they're not worshiping any of the Roman gods. And it's going to continue. And just five more years, they're going to experience Emperor Nero, who's going to line up the streets with the bodies of Christians that have been set on fire just so we can have lights. They are experiencing persecution. And in the midst of the persecution that they're experiencing, as Peter is writing, he tells them, you have a hope. A hope in the resurrection. A hope that Jesus is with you no matter what you go through. But then in chapter, 14, or chapter 3, verse 14, he says, don't be intimidated by what you go through. Instead, verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart as the hope you hold on to. Then he says something peculiar. He says, and as you hold that hope, always be ready to answer anyone that asks for the reason for the hope that you have. Always be ready. I think Peter understood this thing, that if you're really living this Christian life out, if you're living it the way that other people can see that you're fully dedicated to God, questions are coming. The big question is coming your way. You don't have to be outspoken or, or arrogant or pompous about your faith. The truth is when you live it out, people are going to ask about it. This is the story of, of a, a young lady who's a, a young adult that serves in our ministry. And she began to express to my wife and I that, that she works at a restaurant. And it was a slow day because it was raining outside and all the servers are hanging out talking. And, and they're having a conversation about like politics, nothing about religion whatsoever. And one person stands up and puts his finger in the face of this young lady and says, that's why I can't stand Christians. I can't stand that they're judgmental and, 
And in this moment, this young lady has done nothing but live this life diligently. And the big question came. Students, you're not exempt at all. Last year, we talked with an eighth grader who had just been living his life, living the faith that God has for him, and students in his class recognized that. And so he was in science class, and as he was there, they were talking about the billions of galaxies that exist. And a teacher turned her direction towards the student and said, that's why God doesn't exist, because it's inefficient for one God to create billions of galaxies for one earth. What do you say in that moment as a teenager who's hearing this from a teacher? Peter is asking us to be ready. What, she, what he should have said is he should have said things like inefficiency only, only matters to people who don't have a lot of resources and don't have a lot of time. But God fits in neither of those categories because God is infinite in wisdom, infinite in power, and infinite in resources. God's not an engineer, someone who's working to create something that's efficient as a machine. Instead, God's like a painter who creates the night skies so that you can see his majesty. That's what you should have responded. He should have responded. But you know what? In that moment, it's difficult. But Peter says, always be ready. Be ready with what? Ready with an answer. Peter's asking us, point number two, to resolve to have an answer for these questions. When the question comes your way, resolve to have a reasonable response, an answer for those who are asking. As Peter is talking, he says, always be ready, always be ready to have an answer or to make a defense. That's one word. That term, make a defense, it's one word, and the root word is apologio, which stands for, like, a defense. The picture here is that you're in a courtroom, and your faith is on trial. And they're saying, okay, you have this hope, but what about this? What about this? What about this? And what he's saying is that you would have a reasonable response for that hope. Resolve to have an answer. But, but that's the toughest part, to have an answer, right? Like we, my wife and I were talking to a, a mom of several middle schoolers that we have, and she's a single mom, and she's finally going back to school to work on her bachelor's, and, uh, excuse me, her associate, then her bachelor's, and she began to express to us that she knows that God exists, and, and he's done amazing things in her life, and she's seen the miracles and seen what he's done in her, in her children's life. But as she's in this religion class that she's in, People are asking questions, and she's, she just doesn't know how to respond. And can I take a moment and say there's a difference between knowing and showing that God exists, right? You, can, you don't have to have arguments for God's existence to know. You can experience him in worship. You can experience him in your life, and you just know and the knower that you know that God exists. But the question is asking, can you show it? Can you demonstrate to me because I'm struggling? And what happens is when this moment happens, we kind of go to one or two extremes. Either we get really mad about it because they asked us the question, or we get super spiritual about it. And so you get on Facebook, and it's a lovely day, so you're like, I just love Jesus. You're responding on Facebook, and you put it out there, and you're like, that's going to bless somebody. And the first someone gets into your Facebook, they respond to your comments, and they're that person, that family member or that cousin, the one you don't even talk to because they dislike God. And they say something and you respond, well, you're just going to hell. How about that? Right? Like that's the, <laughs> and immediately we get mad 
and we say these things. And, and listen, that may be true, all right? That may be true, but that's not giving them an answer for your hope. That's giving them an answer to what their current spiritual status is. And they're asking for your hope, not theirs. They're asking for a response for you to explain why you still hold on to this. Or we go to the extreme of super spiritual. And I'm not stepping on toes here. But what, what happens is, is a, a student, a child of ours, comes to us and says, Mom, I'm really struggling. Like, who created God? I don't really know about this. And, and then all of a sudden we're like, well, mijo, we just got to pray, right? And then you're like, someone go get the anointing oil. We're going to come down to the altar. We're doing a Jericho march around this apartment right now until this wall goes down, Right? And what happens is we over-spiritualize it. And listen, you should be praying for your students. You should be anointing them. You should be doing Jericho marks. But guess what? In that moment, what they're really seeking for is why you believe. Why? Because everyone doubts. We all struggle with it from time to time. As adults, we forget what we struggle with as students. Students are doubting, and that's okay because doubt can either choose to serve you or it can sink you. And if you're in a room and you're, and you're looking and you're struggling with doubt, either the doubt you're going to say, I'm, I'm the ruler of this world and everything is going to have to sit right with me first. Or you can understand that you can seek God and there's going to be answers. That's when it's going to serve you. And as parents and as family members and as coworkers, we should understand that when they doubt and they ask us these questions, if their heart is sincere, we should resolve to have an answer. Resolve to have an answer, a reasonable response. Why? That their faith could be filled with the hope that you have. They just did a study, and they're talking to uh, adult, adult students. They're talking to college students. And they ask college students, who is the person that shapes your spiritual life the most? So they said, now that you've graduated, is it your youth pastor? Is it kids from from youth group when you were growing up? Is it your current friends? Is it an adult that used to be in your life or is it a parent? And the overwhelming consensus is that parents are the number one influencer in a student's life. So listen to me. Whether you have a preschooler, elementary student, or an adult student, parents, you get an opportunity to shape the life, the spiritual life of your students. And when you respond, because what they're struggling with is, I see you believe it, but I don't see it. And when you respond with a reasonable response, you're giving them the hope that they need. Resolve to have an answer. As we talk about this, I'm fully aware that sometimes it can be intimidating to answer some of these tough questions. And so what I did is I pulled some of our parent groups and some of our students and young adults, and I asked them, what are questions that you struggle with so that I can kind of present them today? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to present to you three questions, and I'm going to try to answer them for you the best that I can. But it's not so you can walk away and be like, Pastor Jonathan is smart, because I'm not, right? This is so you can grasp that this is easy, right? That this is, when you have a reasonable response, you're giving hope and so you can grasp and walk away ready with an answer and resolving to have an answer. So I'll answer these. If I'm in your seat, I'm probably taking notes just in case, all right? Question number one is this, who created God? Who created God? Now, by a show of hands, if you've had that question, you had a family member or someone you know has had that question, can I see your hands real fast if that's you? Don't be shy. Yeah, yeah, this is the majority of the room. Who created God? I'll give you the quick answer, and then I'll explain it, all right? 
Who created God? The quick answer is this. No one. Because God is an uncreated being. All right? No one created God because God is an uncreated being. Now, as I tell you that answer, sometimes that's a struggle to fully grasp. But let me explain it this way. Everything that begins to exist has a cause, right? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. So when you're asking who caused, who caused, who caused, there has to be a first cause, right? When you look at your kids and you're like, whose kid are you, right? You are, right? That's, that's you, right? And then your parents said the same thing and that's them. And you keep on going all the way back to the universe, to the galaxy, so on and so forth. But there has to be a moment that was the first cause, that's who we're saying God is. God is the first cause. And we all only have two options, either something that was eternal that began everything or that there was nothing and then something created out of nothing, right? So, so when we say that, the latter doesn't really make too much sense, right? Because things don't just pop out of nothing, like if the galaxy popped out of nothing, why wouldn't anything else pop out of nothing? Why doesn't root beer just pop out of nothing on my desk? Or, or why doesn't the cowboys have some winds that pop out of nothing every once in a while? Like, I'm praying for you, Cowboys fans. Like, things obviously don't pop out of nothing. There has to be a cause behind it, right? And that's what we're saying. The, the, <laughs> we're saying that the, the earth, the universe isn't eternal. That's what prominent science has said. So therefore, there had to be someone that started. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go just a little bit deeper with this. The question itself is a fallacy. It's called a category fallacy. It's equivalent to me asking the question, what does the color green smell like? You'd be like, what green doesn't smell, right? Like, that's markers, right? Or, or asking the question, what does the number three weigh? It doesn't weigh anything, right? Why? Because they're two different categories. The minute you ask who created the uncreated God, you're not even talking about God anymore. Right? You're talking about like Zeus or some other God. But our God is uncreated. The Bible says, Psalms chapter 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. It's impossible for him to go out of existence. He's always existed and he always will exist. So number one, who created God? No one. God is an uncreated being. I'm going to get this hanky because I'm glistening. All right? Number two. Number two is this. I have science. Why do I need God? I have science. Why do I need God? Now, you might notice uh, this is said in different ways. Like, you might have people in your life that have said things like, I don't believe anything that's not proven by science. Or science is closing the gaps of God. Um, those types of ideas. I'm going to talk about that real fast. Here's the quick answer. It's this. Science explains the how. But God explains the who and the why. So science explains the how. God explains the who and the why. Science is a great thing. It's one of the greatest inventions we've ever created as humans, right? It's, it's an amazing thing. But science doesn't explain everything. There are several things that you believe on a daily basis that science does not explain. Can I give you an example? Two plus two equals? Okay, 11 o'clock service. We need to work on that one just a little bit, right? So y'all were like, 18. No, 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? 2 plus 2 equals 4, and that's a mathematic truth. That's not a scientific truth, right? Science presupposes mathematics. It doesn't demonstrate it, right? Here's another thing. The person sitting next to you has a mind, we hope, right? Like the person sitting next to you has a mind. You will never be able to prove that scientifically. Why? Any evidence you present will be present, presented to your own mind. 
So you can't prove that. Or there's other things like history. How about this one? Arsenic, right? You, you shouldn't give arsenic to your mother-in-law. That's probably an important truth, right? But that's a moral truth. Science can tell you arsenic will kill someone, but it won't tell you you shouldn't give it to them. That's morals. So science explains a lot, but not everything. If you came to my house and we were watching the OKC Thunder game, right, because I'm a fan. I'm not making fans this morning, but I'm an OKC fan, right? And you came in and you saw water boiling on the stove and you said, hey, why is the water boiling? And I explained to you, well, it's two-part hydrogen, one-part oxygen. And what happens is as the temperature raises, the molecular bonds begin to disintegrate. They separate, and it goes from the liquid phase state to the, to the gas state. And you'd be like, okay. And I would say to you, I'm just making us some ramen noodles, right? Like, in that moment, you understand both are good explanations, right? Scientific explanation is great. It tells us the how. But who put it on there and why? That's a different explanation. Science explains the how. God explains the who and the why. And the last one is this. Why does God allow evil? Why does God allow evil? And this is presented in several ways. Sometimes it's why does God allow suffering or superfluous evil or things like that. And so this is a difficult one because we all experience evil. And there's two ways I'm going to explain this. One is by talking about the head and then the other one by the heart. It's the same coin, two sides. When some people present this question, really what they're, what they're meaning is they're trying to do it as a proof against the existence of God. And so they'll say there's an issue with God being all-loving, God being all-powerful, and evil still existing. So they'll say either he's, he's all-loving He wills it to be done, but he's not able, like Pastor Alfred said. He doesn't have the power to end the evil that we see. Therefore, he doesn't exist. Or he's all powerful. He just doesn't love you enough to get rid of the evil in your life. Therefore, we would say that's someone we shouldn't worship. He doesn't exist. And as these two horns of the dilemma, and the way that you break the horns of the dilemma is by showing that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that we see. Morally sufficient reason for the evil. This is what we mean. God can take the evil you see and use it for something that's morally better. And we do not stand in a position to see evil from a bird's eye view to say any evil particular or in general cannot be used by God. As a matter of fact, if God exists, he does exist, that's how you can know that he's able to use it. This is why professional philosophers, they don't use this argument anymore because they know you can't justify it. If you want a fancy word to use, you can say we don't have the epistemological privilege. That means we can't know it that he can't use it. And so evil doesn't disprove God's existence. If anything, it shows God's grace. How could God know that I'm so evil and he still loves me? That shows his grace. So that's the head, but what about the heart? What about, what about knowing in my heart that God ha- is able to take care of the evil that we see? Here's the answer. God has a perfect plan for your pain. God has a perfect plan for your pain. It was about um, six months ago last week that uh, my wife and I, it was a Saturday morning, the day before Mother's Day, we got a call and we woke up too. 
and uh, it was a call saying, hey, uh, Jonathan, your dad's not doing well. So they were saying, you need to make it up here because they're telling us to get our things in order. He's in the hospital. And I remember in that moment, just scrambling, calling friends, trying to get on planes, trying to get up there. And it's, like I said, Mother's Day weekend, so flights were fully booked, and it was difficult. And a couple hours passed by, and they called us, and they said, your dad has coded twice. And um, it's not looking well. So we just jumped into the car. And uh, we knew it was like an eight-hour drive with the family, but I got a little bit of a lead foot, so I was like, we're going to try to make it as fast as we can. So we begin to drive, and uh, in that drive, I'm, I'm saying every prayer I know how to say. Like, I, like, just everything that comes to my mind to pray, I'm praying, God, that you would heal my dad. God, that you can still do the miracles that I desire. God, that you're still there. I'm saying every verse that I know how to say. Verses that don't even make sense. I'm like, Jesus wept, and I don't know why, but I hope he's weeping now. Right? Like, like, I'm just, I'm saying anything. Halfway along the way, they said he's coded a third time. We've put a stent so that he survives basically until you get here. Medically induced coma, essentially. So we drive. We get to the room. There's wires everywhere wrapped up around him family members crying and in that moment a nurse came to us and said we think tonight's the night tonight he's going to pass away and uh, at that moment you know you just have a sinking feeling they said either you can stay in the room I mean either you can stay in the lobby or you can go home but you can't stay in the room and so I said no I'll stay in the lobby and lights went out and I just began to pray God, I know you're the God that can do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. God, I know that no matter what I face, there's a hope I can hold on to, and that hope is in you. And I know that you're here, and you can still do, and you can still heal. And as I was praying that, the nurse came in from the back room, and she said, Mr. John, Mr. Samuels, there has been progress. And I thought, that's great. So I went into the room thinking, my dad's awake, he's going to heal. But I found out the term that she used, progress, really meant that he's awake and he's dying. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, what if the worst day of your life is the day that God uses for progress for you? What is the evil that you've been looking back at and saying, my life would be better if this didn't happen. God is using that somehow for your progress, a perfect plan for your pain. And so we watched my dad and as his heart rate went to 100 and down to 40 and then to 70 and 30 and until there was no heart rate. We watched him pass. Of the flood of emotions, the flood of feelings that come in, one of those was hope. Why? Because I could remember in my brain, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that says this. It says, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, we are still in our sins. 
And if our hope is just for this world, we as Christians deserve to be pitied. And the very next verse says this. It says, but Jesus was raised from the dead. And because of that, all who have passed will raise again. And in that moment, I have a hope that I hold on to that says, even still, I'll see him again. Even still, he's graduated and he's gone to be with the father who said, well done, good and faithful servant, and I'll see him again. There's a hope. God has a perfect plan for your pain. Even if you never understand why you go through what you go through, he has a plan for it. Everyone stand with us. The last point is this. The answer is the hope. The answer is the hope. When you respond to someone who asks these questions of you, what you're doing is you're instilling hope into them if the prayer team will move forward. And when you begin to answer these questions, what happens to your hope is it begins to be solidified in the foundation. Every answer that you give also shows you that God is bigger and that God is better. And someone in the room, as I was praying, you're just dealing with a life that says, I just need hope right now. Ladies and gentlemen, that hope is the hope that Peter was talking about when he says, always be ready to give an answer for the reason for the the hope you have. A hope that says in Hebrews chapter 6 that we have this anchor that is a hope for my soul. Hope that says you can put your faith and your trust in him. So if you're here and you're saying, I need that hope, the prayer team's to the front, and when I count to three, I just want you to come down to the front and find someone to pray with. You don't have to be shy or afraid, but there is a hope ready for you so that you can also be ready for hope. If that's you, one, you don't have to be afraid. God's with you. Two, the hope God has for you is bigger and better than what you're currently facing. Three, if that's you, come down to the front right now. If that's you, if you're saying, that's the hope I need, that's the hope that I, 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 I put my faith into, that's the hope I put my life into, 